Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, if you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a podcast wherein myself and my co-host, Kyle, uh, take turns introducing one another to films. Um, and in this way, we help each other to catch up on our cinema. Um, this month, uh, the month of August 2019, uh, we've been doing a little something on the show we've been calling Anime August. Um, Basically, what Anime August has been is uh, an excuse to have me uh, take the reins of the programming for an entire month. Um, usually, we take turns, but this time around, uh, I got four consecutive episodes to myself where I got to pick the movies, uh, all of which I'm very familiar with and uh, Kyle will, will have been seeing for the first time. Um, obviously, uh, Kyle isn't speaking uh, right now. And that would be because we had a little bit of a recording mishap. Um, we actually recorded this episode uh, successfully, but the file was corrupted. So I'm going to try to salvage things as best I can. Um, that being said, uh, what anime did we cover today? Uh, to answer that question, uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you. Uh, it was 1997's Perfect Blue, uh, directed by Satoshi Kon and animated by Studio Madhouse, which uh, is a bit of an unconventional choice, if you ask me. And uh I guess I'll explain that. Um, so Satoshi Kon is kind of a luminary in the in the world of anime. Uh, he unfortunately passed away and uh, did not actually direct that many feature films uh, during his his career. Uh, however, he rubbed shoulders with and actually worked under uh, some of the titans of the industry, uh, probably most notably Katsuhiro Otomo. Um, he also worked with Mamoru Oshii on some of the Pat Labor stuff. Uh, did some of the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure uh, OVA in the in the I think the mid '90s. Uh, point is, uh, Satoshi Kon uh, has a particular voice. Uh, he's kind of a unique voice in the world of anime. Um, oftentimes, his uh, his projects have to do with um, the nature of reality and uh, dream logic and things of that nature. Um, it's also worth noting that a lot of his stories, if not all of them, uh, tend to have a female protagonist. Um, very unique voice in the world of anime. Uh, it's very unfortunate he, that he passed away kind of prematurely, uh, I believe due to pancreatic cancer. Um, but Studio Madhouse, I mentioned this was kind of a strange uh, pairing between a director and animation house. Oh, by the way, uh, this was actually the feature film debut, uh, directorial debut of uh, Satoshi Kon. So uh, hell of a debut if you ask me. Um, but going back to Studio Madhouse, um, I took special care this month uh, to select each of the films slash OVAs uh, that we'd be covering um, were were animated by distinct animation houses and directed by uh, very, very distinct voices in the anime community. Uh, the first episode we did this month was uh, Otaku no Video, uh, which was a two-part OVA uh, animated by Studio Gainax. Uh, which are typically known um, largely for like the the Eva stuff, like Evangelion and whatnot. Um, but in general, they're also known for like their their enthusiasm. Uh, oftentimes, they they tend to deal with like fanboyish concepts and and settings and whatnot. Uh, they also do spaceships and mechs pretty well too. Uh, and of course, the the Gainax bounce, um, which uh, Kyle and I made sure to mention on that episode. <laughs> Um, following that, I believe we did Ghost in the Shell, uh, which was directed by Mamoru Oshii, uh, who, if you ask me, is 
Like, he's an interesting director uh, for anime because a lot of times I feel like his his animations almost feel like they could have or should have been done in live action. And in fact, he's done live action films since uh, since his early anime days. Um, Ghost in the Shell was, of course, animated by Production IG, which uh, their style, in my eyes, is uh, characterized by like intensely detailed and photorealistic uh, background paintings. Uh, they have some of the best background painters in, in the industry in its entire history, if you ask me. Um, Ghibli's a close second, but I think, I th- I think, I think Production IG has the title. Um, as well as uh, their character animation tends to, tend to, to lean more realistic. Um, physics behave the way they should with the human body. Uh, people move with appropriate agility as opposed to like fanciful uh, kind of stuff that you would see in a Studio Ghibli film uh, where everybody seems to have like unnatural parkour powers. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, the next film we covered uh, was Princess Mononoke, Mononoke Hime, uh, directed of course by probably the, the biggest name in, a, well internationally the biggest name in, a, in anime, Hayao Miyazaki. Um, it was a it was a big fucking deal in, in anime and continues to be to this day. It has quite the legacy. But that was, of course, a Studio Ghibli production and uh, bore all of the qualities that you would expect a product from that studio to have. Um, gorgeous animation, uh, really lush, colorful backgrounds, background paintings, that is. Um, and I don't know that any CG was used in that film, although there are some tracking shots in there where some of the backgrounds look like it may have. But that... I know for a really long time they pride themselves on that, on doing everything by hand. Uh, which brings us to Perfect Blue and Madhouse. Um, this is uh, this is an extraordinarily well-directed and edited film. Uh, the shot choices, the, the lighting, the, the editing in particular, the transitions. Um, I can't help but think of the movie Highlander uh, when I look at some of the transitions in this film, and I guess I'll make sure to, uh, to point out what I mean by that as we get into it. Um, but yeah, it's a very well-considered film. But what's interesting about Madhouse having animated it to me is that when I think Madhouse, I think like Ninja Scroll. I think like uh, Batman Gotham Knight. I think uh, what I think it was Redline. Basically, I think like over-the-top like bombastic violence and action, uh, or a Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. That's a that's an example of what I have in my mind when I think of that particular studio. I know they're multifaceted. Um, but I feel like their speciality is action, and Perfect Blue is decidedly not that. Um, it's largely a psychological drama. Um, uh, so I guess we should probably get to the movie. Um, again, it came out in 1997, um, and it takes place in the world of 1997 Japan, or at least mid-90s uh, Japan. Uh, and some of the attention to detail in rendering that is is kind of impressive in how quaint it is like it feels it feels like it could have been shot on film uh it feels like we're we're on sets like we're navigating a camera through physical space as opposed to hand drawing everything um so yeah the the first shot of this film uh is actually a super sentai show like a, a live show and in the episode I recorded with Kyle, he mentioned that uh, he he recalled this like from his his childhood, um, like state Power Rangers uh, stage shows, like like touring across the country and whatnot. And I think I was a little too old to to know about that. 
uh, however, of course, I, I remember like, you know, all the Disney on ice stuff and he and I've talked about, uh, the episode of Rugrats, uh, where they do the reptar on ice and everything. So like on ice or on stage, <laughs> uh, shows of children's properties were definitely a thing at this point in time. Uh, of course, like if you've been on the internet and are a bit of a nerd, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, the... Uh, Ninja Turtles coming out of their shells tour. Uh, I I remember seeing tons of advertisements for that. My parents never took me to see it. Thank God. Um, I'm sure I would have. I would have been embarrassed by that. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, this is a thing. Uh, I know this is a thing in Japan. It continues to be so. At Toei Studios, I think, has like their own theme park, and they do like Kamen Rider themed stuff and uh, Sentai themed like stage shows. You know for young people and whatnot um but yeah the the opening shots of this film are actually like a sentai stage show and it's very it's very jarring um when you think of the title perfect blue and if you look at any of the promotional materials for this film uh all the images used to promote this film are of a a young woman in distress or looking kind of melancholy to some extent uh so you wouldn't expect the fucking power rangers to be the first thing you see in that movie um but this is very intentional, and I, I think it's it's very well considered. Basically, what I th- what I think the intention here is is it's intended to introduce introduce us, the viewer, uh, to this concept of layered reality. So the first thing we see in this movie is a essentially a play, like it's a stage performance. Uh, however because we're watching an animated film, it's not apparent that it's a performance until the lens, the lens literally gets pulled back a bit. And we see that, oh, these characters are on a stage and the pyrotechnics are manufactured. There's no actual danger. Um, but So this theme carries throughout the entire film, uh, where reality is oftentimes called into question. And uh, it's the viewing angle that you you take when you when you uh, when you approach these things that kind of dictates how real things are um, there's a lot of false reality in in this story um, there's a lot of instances where us the viewer uh, the audience uh, we're intended to be kind of disoriented we're intended to be kind of thrown off kilter and not gonna lie it is a little bit frustrating at times for sure uh, but I think it's really neat um, upon repeat viewings like uh this is only the second or the third time i've seen this movie uh watching it for the show that is and i felt i got a lot more out of it than i did the first time because yeah uh, there are there are a lot of things that are are a little bit confusing about this um but yeah the this sentai team uh they beat up some villain named kingberg and i we start to pull the lens back and it becomes apparent that yeah this is all happening on a stage we're in some sort of theme park and we see that the crowd is uh, largely young men. Uh, and then we see some kids like ducking in between them. Uh, so it's important to put a pin in that, that the audience here is mostly young men and that'll continue to be a theme throughout the movie. Um, and then we head out to like the, I don't know, the lobby area uh, just outside the theater. And there's a, there's a gaggle of otaku uh, which is you know, something I taught, a concept that I taught Kyle about uh, at the very beginning of Anime August, uh, otaku, like fanatics. Um, and these are characters that we'll be revisiting several times throughout the film. Uh, they're all conversing about some sort of idol group. Uh, 
Um, and there's about three of them and they're all, they're, one of them walks by and he has like a stack of autographs and he's repeating to himself like basically what he's going to say when he presents these uh these photos he wants autographed you can tell like every, most of these characters here um, even by their character models which we'll definitely get into in a bit uh, they're kind of on the fringe of society in some way these aren't these aren't mainstream folks uh, so they're 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 nerds but they're a particular type of nerd um but yeah there's a there's a nickname that gets thrown out here uh that of mimarin um it's it's the nickname for our, our central character to the story whose actual name is mima um but yeah these characters come across as a little bit indignant they're kind of like bitchy about about um consuming the products they're being served up to them and i went over this in detail with kyle but i I should probably do it for safety's sake um, by myself here. Uh, so the concept of an idol uh, is kind of, kind of a like a a Japanese thing. It's not really something that we have here in the states. I mean, we have we have celebrities for sure. We have celebrity culture for sure. Um, but an idol is a very particular kind of thing, and I can't really think of an efficient way to de- to describe it or define it. But my understanding is it's like a it's a young woman that acts as a as kind of like a a brand um so an idol typically acts as a a model an actress a tv personality uh anything pretty much anything you can commodify and and slap on a plastic lunchbox (laughs) um it's a really strange industry uh, because as far as I know, these these ladies don't make that much money. However, they basically have to manufacture a personality um, and kind of act as like a surrogate girlfriend to their adoring fan base. Um, oftentimes this results in the uh, in their management like keeping them from from dating publicly um, because it it, "Quote unquote, like rob robs that personality, that idol of of their purity, um, and that's a huge part of the idol industry, as far as I understand it. Is that you're you're creating? It's a it's definitely like a young person thing, not the consumer, uh, the product, the 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 woman in question. Uh, basically, it's like a, a young girl that uh, parades around in skimpy outfits, almost never nude because that would be dirty." Um, and has 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 basically no no overt sexuality about them they're just they're just like an object basically and that comes into question well that becomes a thing later on in this movie but yeah um a huge chunk of the story deals with the idol industry and uh i guess what it means to to have touched that world or 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 to have been part of that world and to try to break away from it um because Again, you're you're presenting a manufactured personality, and I think some of the themes in this movie actually probably are are more relevant to today than they were in the late '90s. Just this concept of of having a manufactured personality. It's like it's like pretending to be like a pro wrestler twenty four seven or something, where you through things like Twitter, or Instagram, or or any form of any form of like alternate reality basically we can pick and choose who we want to be um in an idol's case you're kind of being pressured to be a certain way because it 
it's the best way to to gain attention and earn sales and whatnot um but it's interesting to think about the the psychology that comes with that where it's like if you spend too much of your time inhabiting a a a false personality um where who who and what are you at that point like if if you spend all of your time as this idle character um who are you when nobody's watching um and that's definitely a huge theme in this story um anyway uh we cut to the backstage area and we see three idols uh three young ladies in skimpy outfits uh getting ready uh for some sort of show uh we we figure out it's a concert pretty in pretty short order um but everybody's pretty nervous um the character movement here and the energy is it comes across as very genuine it feels like what it what it's like to be behind the curtain uh, just before a concert or something and then we get this really cool shot where uh, our main character, Mima, who we're about to meet in Ernst, uh, is standing at the edge of the curtain, and we can hear like the crowd kind of rumbling, and she has her fists like, balled up at her side. And you can tell from her body language that she's, she's nervous. And then the curtain gets pulled back. We hear like an announcer call out to the crowd and say, ah, it's, it's Chum. Chum is the name of the, the idol group that Mima's a part of. And then she like instantly perks up and throws her arms up like like fucking David Lee Roth or something. And then uh, the crowd erupts into cheers. And then a uh, white title card, uh, perfect blue. Uh, and, and then utter silence. Uh, it's kind of a haunting moment. It's pretty cool. I liked it. Um, and then we start to get some of the trippy editing uh, that's pretty widespread throughout this film. Uh, however, executed excellently. Um, so we cut from that white screen uh, to Mima on a train, and she has earbuds in. And uh, the music she's listening to is actually like the song that's being played at the concert. And during the sequence, we keep cutting back and forth between Mima like after the concert, heading home, and then back to the concert, and then back and forth and back and forth. And so the, the sound mix is really cool because... Uh, the first time we start hearing the song is in her ears through her headphones and the way they layer the audio it makes it it makes it sound like we're eavesdropping on someone listening to music um but then when we cut back to the performance it's like it's loud and proud and we're actually there at the venue um but the sequencing of the song doesn't change it plays linearly so it's pretty cool um and yeah uh, in the crowd we see a shit ton of photographers and stuff um it's a it's a concert and uh once again we noticed the fan base largely consists of young men um and this is where i started to notice the uh the uh, character models and this is something that um i talked to kyle about and we we never really found like a hundred percent of an answer as to why this is the way it is um but i noticed that the the faces of a lot of the like male characters like the side characters in this movie uh, usually spectators uh, have an interesting structure to them. I was calling them like frog-faced people because uh, they have like tiny beady eyes and their eyes are like decidedly widely spaced. Um, their eyes are very far apart. And oftentimes they have like a, a dopey, like dull expression on their face, either that or like a, a lecherous, like kind of creepy looking face to them. Um, and this this spun off into a conversation with Kyle about... Um, 
some research I did before we did Anime August because I was I was trying to come at things you know well informed. Uh, I you know I try to make the show as educational as possible whenever I can. Um, but I just read some articles about uh, why anime, like mainstream anime, usually. Um, not the funky weird shit, but <laughs> like the mainstream stuff, like why it appeals so much to, to young people. Um, because I'm, I'm actually in the middle of trying to write a story uh, that would likely be best served up to like a, a teenaged audience, at least in my mind. And so I'm trying to get to the root of how to structure stories like that. And this article explored the concept of uh, folks with like learning disabilities or maybe less than mainstream understandings of social cues and things along those lines and how the animation style uh, how how anime's presentation can appeal to people with those backgrounds and a lot of it had to do with um things being very gestural and hyperbolic in anime like character deformation uh when when speaking or expressing uh, is is taken to an extreme in anime that typically isn't in Western animation. Like when when someone's mad in anime, uh, there there's certain very universal looks that they take on, or certain def- like deformities that their their proportions take on, where it's basically impossible to not get the message. Like I don't I don't care if you have no understanding of how communication is done between people. Like if you look at if you look at this shot or or like this this stream of animation. It's pretty easy to understand where most of the characters are because it's typically not very subtle. Um, and the what what I took from from the funky like frog faced people in this movie is that it's like a, a form of shorthand for saying that like they're they're lecherous or maybe subhuman in some way uh, because it needs to be said almost all these characters that that have this particular character model. Um, are typically portrayed in a negative light. They're antagonistic in some fashion. So it's like just the construction of their faces kind of universally tips the viewer off that these are people not to be trusted or these are people who are intended to be creepy in some fashion because they have a strange look to them. Um, Like I said, Kyle and I talked about it. We didn't really come up with a 100% of an answer, but uh, it was a nice conversation. Um, But yeah. Almost everybody in the crowd is a frog-faced dude. <laughs> um, so from the from the concert scene, we cut to like Mima in the grocery store, and there's some really lovely shots here. Um, it has like a soft lighting to it. it. Has that like fluorescent lighting to it. And by the way, hand-drawn animation. <laughs> so like the attention to detail in here, and like they do some like fisheye lens stuff here. Um, and when you think about that, and and apply that to hand-drawn animation that means the person who had to draw that had to had to actually alter the proportions of the figures to to like mimic that of a camera lens like the distortions that happen with certain camera lenses that's extra effort that's certainly appreciated if you ask me but uh, maybe extraneous uh, in the hands of a different director Uh, but again directorial debut so maybe he wanted to go for broke um but yeah, Mima, at this point, she flops into bed. Uh, she's exasperated, and we notice that she's wearing different clothes than we've seen her in before. And this is all in, like, intense close-up. And my initial reaction in seeing this shot um, is to think, like, oh, is she in danger? What's happening here? And then we get, like, 
the the two in the one two punch of a of our first shot in the film that of the the sentai show uh of hammering home that theme of a layered reality and what happens here is we we have this close-up shot of her flopping into bed and looking like exhausted and terrified and then the camera like literally pulls back and it goes through like a a scan line like crt scan line filter and we see that oh we're watching footage of her of mima uh, on a tv monitor in an office no less so and and the demeanor of the people there in the room watching this tv uh is very casual uh so we come to understand that what we're watching is very likely just a performance it's not her actually in danger or anything like that Uh, she's acting uh, which again this is going to be a thing that happens a lot in the film a lot of a lot of instances where it's like oh is this real i don't know um but yeah we we pull into a conference room we pull back from the tv into a conference room of some sort and and we meet her uh her management mima's management and it's a uh, mr tadokoro and a, a woman named rumi uh who has an unfortunate haircut uh just say that much um and mr tadokoro wants her to transition to acting and kyle made sure to note here that uh it sounds like he it sounds like there's very little push on on mima's end personally to to make this transition it's more just like business for the sake of business where mr tadokoro is just like you know it'd be really great if you know you you quit this this uh song and dance business and you know took up acting like it would be good for all of us um and again this is something that'll come up throughout the movie um and yeah, uh, Rumi is kind of like, she's kind of like uh, Mima's handler of some sort. She's she's some form of management. I'm not sure exactly what her title is. But the, the main philosophical difference between these two characters, Mr. Tadokoro and Rumi, is that Tadokoro wants, he wants to, he wants to, you know, run a good business. Um, we can tell from the way he dresses and from the state of his office throughout the film that their agency, like this talent agency or what have you, is not the most successful. Like, they're they're doing fine, but it's not like they're the super big-time people. Like, they get excited over getting, a, a like, a, a single in the top 100, like number 83 in the top 100. That's, like, the biggest success they've had. So they're, they're small time. Uh, so he's just trying to make things work. And to his credit, I don't feel like he's a, a sleazy son of a bitch or anything. He's just he's just trying to do a job, and he does show some remorse about some of his actions later in the film. So he's he's not unlikable. He's just in a precarious position. But the philosophical difference between him and Rumi is that Rumi is like all about Mima. Like she wants what's best for Mima. She's very protective in like a big sister or motherly sort of way. And this carries on throughout the entire film. Uh, so at this point, we cut back to the concert, and uh, we're introduced to a character that uh, Kyle and I decided to uh, nickname the Stalker. Um, he has a couple of names throughout the film. Um, in my notes, I'd been referring to him as security because uh, he wears a security guard's uniform, and I guess that's his day job. Um, Mimania, uh, Mimania is another name that he goes by later in the film. Um, but the stalker seems perfectly appropriate, probably more efficient anyway, because that's exactly what he is, and that's his role in the film. 
Um, this guy's facial extract construction um, has that frog face thing going for fucking sure. Um, however, it's taken to an extreme um, that it isn't with most of the other characters. Um, for one, his eye, his his iris. Um, by the way, we can only really see one eye on his face because his, he has like a middle part and his hair is long and it perpetually hangs over one of his eyes. Uh, so the one eye that we can see, uh, it's drawn gray. Um, pro tip, uh, Japanese people typically only have brown eyes, so if you see gray eyes, um, maybe take notice <laughs> or suspect colored contacts. Um, but not only does he have a gray eye, it's it's also evidently very widely spaced. Uh, he's got kind of like a smushed face, like he doesn't have a very well-defined nose, and his teeth are fucked. Like, it's not uncommon for Japanese people to have fucked teeth, but his are, like, doubly fucked. Um, and he's very creepy looking. Um, he's also very tall. Um, not, like, not like big and bulky, but he's also very tall, kind of lanky. And we're introduced to him working security at, like, the front row of this concert, at this Cham concert. And he's watching the show. Like, he's not watching the crowd like you would expect a bouncer or a security guy to do. He's watching the show. Um, and at one point he's like squatted down, uh, just below the stage and he holds out his palm and there's this really, really creepy, but also very clever shot. Um, again, this is an instance where, you know, maybe live action wouldn't have been the best choice because actually capturing this shot from this angle in this manner may have been kind of logistically difficult. Um, but essentially what it is, is, um, we see, a, we see a shot head on of him and he has this this pervy smile on his face, and he's holding out his palm in front of his face. And then we cut to a shot from his perspective, and from his viewpoint, um, the way he's holding his palm in front of his face, uh, Mima is standing in his palm while she's dancing, and you can tell that that's his relationship. Like, that is extraordinarily good visual storytelling. Basically, what we just communicated to the viewer is that this is his relationship with this character. He sees her as like a a thing to be possessed, a thing that exists to entertainment, uh, to entertain him uh, or pleasure him or what have you. Um, and this is this kind of plays back to that that uh, detail that I mentioned about the otaku that we met at the show earlier. Is that they have kind of an indignant nature to them. And Kyle and I actually went back and forth a little bit about this. Just this idea of I don't know, folks. Folks having an unrealistic sense of their their place in the universe, like a false sense of self-importance, and and more and more we see this happen. And I think it comes from just an overall detachment or disengagement with the real world, uh, because it's it's becoming increasingly easy to step outside of reality and spend eighty percent of your time in a false reality where you probably mean more and look different and feel different than you do in your real life um but yeah the the tone these otaku have about like mima and cham's career is is that of like oh well like like i don't like the product that they're making uh, and yet i'll consume everything they make um but it's we see this happening with with like marvel movies and stuff like that today where where people everybody seems to have an opinion and like they have unwarranted unwarranted like reactions to 
to changes or developments that it it's like they they feel that they have a stake in the proceedings when in actuality it's like no actually you you don't like all you actually do is consume the product <laughs> it's it's served up to you and maybe you should just appreciate the fact that there is a product to consume rather than bitching about it all the time um but anyway that was a rant uh so during the concert though uh there's some hooligans that kind of try to start some shit uh, they start like throwing cans and stuff, and at some point, uh, when they're making a whole bunch of noise, uh, the stalker actually approaches them in his security guard uniform. So this is actually him kind of doing his job. But uh, the the body language he approaches them with uh, it suggests that it's not him doing his job. It's more him like taking offense to the fact that they're interrupting the concert. And more than that, uh, I think this is actually the point in the concert when Mima is preparing to deliver a farewell speech. Um, because th that conversation that we had in the management office about her transitioning to acting uh, must have come before this. Uh, so she's actually this is actually her farewell concert. Uh, so she's like in the middle of her fa farewell speech, and these three hooligans, one of whom has uh, got long greasy hair and like really bad insta tan, like Hulk Hogan grade insta tan. Um, they start some shit, and they actually get physical with the stalker, who doesn't really do much to stop them. He just kind of stands there and doesn't really say anything, and it makes it doubly fucking creepy. Um, at some point, though, Mima actually calls a stop to the to the violence. Stop the violence! Um, by like crying out to the crowd, like I just I just want to have a good time with you. <laughs> like like everybody, cut the shit. I I'm just here to entertain you and have a good time with everyone. And this is kind of her, her personality. Um, how much of it is her manufactured personality, I'm not sure, but we'll definitely get to that. Um, she is very much a peacekeeper when it comes to how she relates to other people. Um, but to like definitely call a, a definitively call a halt to the violence and whatnot, um, the other girls in the Cham group, uh, they actually interrupt her and say like, oh, uh, today Mima is going to graduate from Cham. And this is a strange way of phrasing it. Um, however, this is I know this to be not t altogether that uncommon when it comes to idol groups breaking up and whatnot. Like that that expression to graduate from something. It, it's like a way. It's like a softer way of saying goodbye, I guess. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway, the farewell song starts. Uh, Mima sings her farewell song, and we finally get the opening credits of the movie. Um, which play over like a montage of of the city and Mima like heading home to her apartment. Um, she gets home and uh, we cut away from her like looking out her, her doorway before she goes in. Like she looks out into the city and looks concerned about something. Um, and then we once again jump in time very like very jarringly <laughs> uh, to the post-concert. And it's her, like, in, in street clothes, ducking into a car, like, wading through a crowd and ducking into a car. Uh, so it's her and her uh, her fellow bandmates ducking into a car. Um, and we see that she has, like, some fan mail, like, clutched in one of her hands as she's ducking into the car. And I noticed that somebody in the crowd, like, called out to her. Uh, like, I'm always looking at Mima's room, uh, which is not something a young lady wants to hear in the big city <laughs> um but this audio uh this this uh, verbalization 
plays over like the transition back to her apartment. Uh, so we cut from her leaving the concert to her having already arrived at her apartment. By the way, her cheese went bad. Um, and then we're introduced to the in- interior of her apartment. And uh, this is a key location in the film that we'll revisit many, many times. Uh, the main thing to take away from it is that it's it's fairly quaint. She doesn't live like a mega celebrity or anything. She lives in what appears to be a fairly ordinary apartment, uh, albeit in Tokyo, in the big city. Um, it's not messy, but it's not super organized. Um, she has a whole bunch of stuffed animals at the foot of her futon. Um, she has a chom poster, a very big chom poster, hanging on one of the walls, which she promptly tears down and says uh, bye-bye to herself. Bye-bye, Mima the pop idol. Um, and she also has a fish tank. Oh, yeah, and I noticed that she has a PlayStation, a PlayStation 1, um, which made me smile. Unfortunately, it's never used in the film, uh, but just the fact that it's there kind of made me happy. Um, and at this point, she sits down to read her fan mail. And uh, we see her open the letter that she had in her hand um, in that sequence when she was leaving the concert. Uh, it's a pink letter with a heart sticker on it, so it's you can't fucking miss it, even if you're only casually paying attention to the things. Um, and she opens it, and the text on the letter is that of, I always, I always like looking into Mima's room. Uh, again, not something a young lady in the big city wants to know. Um, and in this case... Uh, it's actually, there's actually a dual meaning. Um, that of maybe she has a stalker. She does. <laughs> and uh, it's also a website, um, which is kind of a funny thing in this movie, and we'll, I'll get to it in a second. So after she le- reads the letter, uh, she gets a phone call. It's her mom. Um, and it's a it's a pretty typical conversation, such that I kind of, I kind of suspect that Mima comes from like a humble background, like maybe she's from the boonies or something because her mom speaks to her in pretty simple terms it's not like a it's not like a sappy conversation it's pretty fucking ordinary um but the mom also mentions that uh her uncle buys like 20 copies of every album that chom puts out which as kyle noted that's that's a little creepy but um shows that her family definitely has her support even though they have no physical presence in this film um and then uh she gets a fax uh, in her apartment, she gets a fax, um, and the the words plastered all over it in a variety of fonts, um, probably like cut out like a uh, Riddler or John Doe style, uh, Batman Forever Riddler. Um, the word traitor, um, and then that ends the scene. We get a we get a, a trailer shot uh, where the uh, shot like the camera pulls back all the way from the interior of her apartment out into the like the the cityscape into the skyscrapers and whatnot um step it's an alienating shot it makes makes her uh, mima look very small and antagonized in some fashion good filmmaking um and at this point we get uh maybe the most iconic and uh frustrating lines in the whole movie because we hear it so many fucking times but it's a anata dare na no who are you and uh we get a brief sequence where Mima is repeating this line to herself over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, And it becomes apparent that we are on a set uh, for a television show. And that is her line. She is rehearsing her line. Um, However, this line, of course, will apply to the character a little later on, uh, definitely in context. Um, At this point, uh, Mima is sitting with Rumi, and uh, 
Rumi explains the internet to Mima. Like she she talks her through the the concept and the function of the internet. And you need to remember this this film was released in 1997, uh, which means it probably went into production like 1995. By the way. Uh, this and most of Satoshi Kon's films actually are um, based on a novel. Uh, so the source material was a novel. And apparently Perfect Blue was intended to be a live-action film. Uh, however, the, the financing fell through uh, at some point, and it was decided that it would be like an, an OVA uh, film instead, uh, probably to save money, um, which is how Kon got the, uh, got the directing gig. Um, which is very interesting when you think about it. like I don't know if like remnants of the script were transposed onto an animated film, but yeah, it's certainly certain parts of this feel as if it could have been a live action film, and apparently it was made into a, a live action film in like the early two thousands or something. Uh, I haven't seen that, but I doubt it's as good as this. Uh, but yeah, uh, this probably went into production in the mid nineties, so an explanation of the internet is probably warranted. However, looking back in a, on it in uh, 2019 feels a little funky. <laughs> um, anyway, we see a bit of the TV show that Mima is going to be a part of. Um, the name of the show is Double Blind, by the way. And uh, we see some of our actors uh, play out a scene, and it's some sort of crime drama. And we get to meet a character uh, by the name of Eri Ochiai. Uh, she's basically portrayed as like an ace actor, and even her character model. Um, She's got long hair, uh, she's substantially taller than Mima, and the way they relate to one another has like a mentor and student kind of feel to it. Like you can tell that Mima looks up to her, and just from a physical standpoint, you get the, you, that's visually communicated to us, uh, especially through uh, Eri's like body language. She always stands very upright and is never shown to be on her heels or concerned with pretty much anything. Um, but there's a cool moment here where, again, we get this, we get teased this theme of layered reality where we're sh we're doing a take for the show, and uh, we see Eri and her uh, male counterpart on the set, like laughing about something, like they're both like tittering like schoolgirls, and uh, the director's like, "Hey, cut the shit, be ready in five seconds," and then both the actors just kind of like clear their throats, stand up straight, and then instantly slip into character. And again, that's that's this concept of of false reality, where that's that's kind of the nature of acting is you need to be able to put on a false face and inhabit a new per a new persona, uh, pretty much on demand, uh, and you know sometimes that has a consequence to it, um, and that's pretty much what this story is about. Um, I remember before we started recording, uh, Kyle pointed out to me that like yeah like. A big chunk of what I was seeing, like for in the promotion, and like even the title, made me think that this was going to be like a, a serial killer movie or something. Like this was going to be a movie about a woman being attacked or assaulted. Um, but no, actually, the the central theme of the movie seems to have more to do with the concept of performance and acting and the effect that that can have on a person's psychology. Um, and we'll definitely get to that a little later too. But at this point. Um, Mr. Tadokoro and Rumi, uh, they're, they're sitting on the sidelines, they're watching things, um, and they're not really paying attention to Mima, who is looking up into the fucking lights, the studio lights, uh, that's gotta hurt, um, and we get a music cue here, it's just a, like a 
dingle dangle on the piano keys. Uh, it's just a few plinks and plunks here and there. That's it's very minimalist. I actually really like the score to this movie, but this is the first time the score really became apparent to me in the film. Uh, but we get a, a whole bunch of shots from her perspective, looking at like the people around her, and everybody has those weird froggy faces, and uh, everybody's talking and laughing, and it, it has a very alienating feel to it. Like everything, it feels like everybody around her is like talking shit about her or something, and she's very kind of dead faced at all this. But uh, just combination of the the sound, the character models, and and the score tips us off that she's she's in a foreign environment. She feels uncomfortable. Um, at this point, the I think it's the producer and the writer uh, for the show, uh, Mr. Shibuya, he shows up. And he has some like fan mail for all the actors and stuff. Um, but then there's an extra letter that's apparently for Mima. Um, Eri, uh, the lead actress on the set, she she has an exchange with Mr. Shibuya. That's a it's a minor interaction, but something that jumped out at me that she's immediately very flirtatious with him. Like her demeanor is totally different with him. Um, it's it's interesting because it, this is another example of of uh like i don't know how to label it like performative culture or something uh this is something that i know japanese culture is sometimes uh criticized for it's uh that oftentimes that which is meant is not what's being said um it's very there's a lot of implied meaning in the way in the way things are communicated subtle very very subtle um but this is her a person uh who happens to have an acting day job, uh, continuing to act uh, in her interactions with a with a coworker, basically. So it's really interesting that dynamic of when does the performance end, basically. Uh, and it's mentioned here um, by the producer and the writer um, that Mr. Tadokoro wants to bargain for more lines from Mima. However, the management's kind of, the uh, the producers are kind of like, yeah, she's she's one of those idols, and you know, I don't know if that's a good look for us. Like she she's like a bikini model that sings. Do we really want her like doing hardcore serious acting on our show? Like, is she even good? So you can tell that they kind of look down their nose at her uh, for her background. And at this point, there's a multitude of cuts. Uh, Mima's repeating her lines to herself, uh, and then we. There's snippets here of Mr. Tadokoro like opening the the fan mail letter that was supposed to be given to Mima, uh, and then we're getting down to the moment where Mima's gonna get the get the go to deliver her line on the set, and then bam, there's an explosion, and we cut back to Mr. Tadokoro and he's on the ground and he's bleeding, and we see that the the letter was a bomb, and there's like fragments of paper floating in the air, and we see scrawled on one of these fragments that um it says this this one was a warning next time will be real um and mima is kind of dead faced at this but you can tell uh that's a little alarming <laughs> uh, the fan mail that was meant to be delivered to me was a fucking bomb uh so this lady who's already a little nervous about where she's at and where her career is headed has this to deal with now great uh cut back to her apartment and uh, she purchased a Macintosh computer. Um, however, she's technically inept, so she has Rumi like set it up for her. And again, Rumi explains the internet to her. Um, 
Mima has no fucking clue what the internet is. Um, but she does ask about the bombing. As it so happens, uh, Tadokoro insisted the police not be involved. Uh, so at this point in the story, there's no police or anything. Uh, put a pin in that. Um, anyway, uh, Rumi leaves, and we cut to night. And Mima is in her PJs, and she is like adorably... <laughs> Like, like hunting and pecking her way across the keyboard um, to access the the URL, the HTTP URL for uh, the Mima's Room website. And, of course, she does the thing that... I don't know how common this is with actual Japanese people because I'd imagine this is something that one would only do when they're alone. So I don't know how many people I know that do this, uh, Japanese or not. Um, but she's talking to herself the whole time. She's narrating her journey through the internet. <laughs> um, this is something you see in anime a lot. So I don't know how how true to life this is. But anyway, she's doing the thing where she's talking to herself. And uh, the website is very 90s. Uh, there are no dancing baby gifs or anything like that. Uh, nor, nor are there music clips or anything like that playing. No MIDI files. Uh, however, the font and like the background photos and even the way it loads on the screen was very nostalgic for me. Um, anyway, all the hyperlinks on there are fake diary entries. And it's kind of alarming because they are all these diary entries. Uh, many of them have photos, but more importantly, the text within them is uh, stunningly accurate and detailed. And they have a lot of details about her daily routine. Um, like, for instance, uh, we saw her at the convenience store earlier in the film. Um, the diary entry mentions, like, oh, today I bought milk, but I made sure to buy that one brand of milk that I always buy. And Mima, from her facial expression, you can tell she's a little concerned. And then there's, like, one detail, though, that really jumps out at her, where it's like, oh, today I stepped off the train uh, on, and I landed first on my, my right foot when I always do it on my left foot. This is such bad luck for me. No wonder I had a bad day. And you can tell, again, from Mimo's facial expression that it's like, uh-oh, I think somebody's actually watching me because that that is, that's pretty fucking true. Like, that is something that I do. Um, and then there's an audio clip that's embedded in the website, and she clicks the play button, at, like you do, and it's, a, it's her saying her line from the TV set, uh, who are you? And it's on a loop. And of course, because it's on a loop and she has a squeaky voice, it's super fucking creepy. Uh, and then we get a pretty cool transition. I think this is the first instance of what I guess I'd call a, a Highlander transition, uh, where a curtain, uh, one of her curtains, blows in the wind. And as it blows across the, the quote-unquote camera, uh, all of a sudden we're back on the set. So as soon as the curtain resets back to its original position, uh, it pulls back we're back on the tv set and then uh, mima says her line and we get some really tricky editing uh, we, we get some editing that really even threw me for a loop even though i've seen this movie before um but basically mima says her one line who are you uh she speaks to eri they have a brief exchange uh and then we cut to a fashion show and there's like like fucking house music playing over it and it's like a a runway model with a fancy dress and everything walking walking at a fashion show and it's like hey, whoa 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 what's going on here what what kind of transition is that then we hear a scream over the fashion show and then we cut to a crime scene investigation and there's a dead body in the middle of the room and like a detective looking over it uh 
And the reason why this is confusing is because what we just saw, uh, Mima delivering her line, uh, cutting to the fashion show, the scream, going to the crime scene, everything we just saw in that sequence in particular was the edited TV show, was the final product. Uh, and so we do that trick again, where we pull back the lens from the crime scene, and turns out this was footage from the TV show, from Double Blind, uh, that the management from MIMA, Mr. Tadokoro and Rumi, are, are watching again in their like conference room. So it's like, motherfucker, you <laughs> you quit doing that. That's, that's really weirding me out. I don't know. I don't know what's real anymore. Um, but yeah, uh, the discussion continues between Tadokoro and Rumi, where you know they're they're in two different spots. One one feels they know what's best for Mima, and Rumi definitely feels that we're taking taking things in the wrong direction. At one point, uh, the the other two Chom girls walk into the room. Uh, with presumably like their agent or something who like throws a magazine on the table and it it appears that Chum as a duo is actually doing really well uh, which is bad news for Mima who seems to be in a rough spot right now and probably would prefer to know that you know the group that she was with uh, was not doing as well now that she's gone but no they seem to be doing better now that she's gone Uh, so tough shit for her Uh, then we cut to a manga store, and uh, we revisit those three otaku that were at the uh, the Cham stage show, and they're like muttering to themselves about how they they watched Double Blind, they watched the show that Mimo was on, seemingly just because she was in it. And remember, she only had one line in in that episode of the show. Um, so these guys are are pretty hardcore fanatics. However, uh, the stalker happens to be in the room, like. Over, like listening in on their conversation um, and I think it's safe to say that he's probably a little more passionate than they even they are um, then we cut to Mima she's riding on a train we get a cool moment where the train doors are opening on the platform and uh, we get just like one flash of uh, her view of the Mima's room website and she like flies into a panic and instead of stepping off the train she fucking sprints out there like she runs the fuck out of that she runs the fuck out of that subway uh, because she can't help but think about the website and what she read there and about how somebody's probably watching her. And obviously that's a cause for concern. Uh, so she heads out to the street level. Uh, we get a really cool shot of like a moving blue sky that she looks up into. Uh, it seems to calm her down a bit. Um, and then we get a like a fanciful shot that I'm not entirely sure what's intended to mean, um, but I like it. Um, basically she turns her head to the side and there's a like an electronics store display um, and there's a video camera pointed at her from inside this display window there's like three TV monitors facing outward so we see her looking into a reflective surface and through that surface we see three images of her looking back at herself so there's there's something going on there but it's just a really striking image of, of a woman in distress looking looking off to the side and seeing like three of herself in the mirror it's it's a oh, provocative imagery anyway uh she heads into the into an office uh which we later find is her talent agency um needs to be said uh the stalker is actually like looming 
like there's a lot of shots that end with like his his arm or his like shoulder his shadow kind of hanging in in like the corner of the frame then she steps into the elevator of the office and there's like a a newspaper clipping like pasted up on the wall and i can't be positive but i'm pretty sure that the face that's on this newspaper clipping it's a small article it's about a hit and run uh, i'm pretty sure the face of the person was the the gentleman from the concert who was starting shit who uh who roughed up the stalker slash security guard um and based on the fact that the security on the uh, stalker has been kind of looming near Mima and seems to be overly obsessed with her. Uh, it seems pretty apparent that uh, he came back for that guy or something and roughed him up or did something awful to him. Um, anyway, the elevator doors close and uh, Mima does see the stalker through them just as they're closing. Uh, we get a nice shot from her perspective. And at this point, we're we're in the office and uh, Mima has a conversation with Rumi, um, who is sitting down and. Uh, they're talking about the fact that the Cham duo without Mima uh, made the number 83 spot on the top 100, something that Cham never did. They never cracked the top 100, apparently, uh, which is, it's, I think that's important to note, is that Cham is, is fringe. Like, Cham, they have obsessed fans. Of course, they have a handful of obsessed fans, but in the, in the grand fucking scheme of things, they're small time. Like, they're not a big deal. But there's <laughs> there's this theme I've kind of been trying to keep in the back of my mind whenever I see, like, these these gigantic media properties putting out stuff that I, I kind of turn my nose up to. Um, it's that every character is someone's favorite. So just because, like, it doesn't work for me, I need to respect the fact that there's someone out there who this is the most important shit ever. Like, for me, like, you know, Ninja Turtles. I love me some Ninja Turtles. A lot of people did. However, there's people, like, three to four years younger than me that were all about street sharks. However, me, I couldn't give two shits about street sharks. And it's it's just that small difference of being, like, a couple years older or younger or something. And... You know, as as more and more time goes on, I, I'm pretty sure nobody's going to give a shit about street sharks at some point. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, we get this really cool editing moment uh, where when Rumi is talking at Mima about the Chom's about Chom's success, um, Mima kind of like flashes in her mind to a different place, like a different place in time. So this <laughs> this lady is a little weird. Uh, she heard her mind wanders apparently uh sometimes beyond her control uh but we cut to a scene of her like sitting down with the other two chum girls and they're setting off like firework poppers and they're celebrating their like earliest success so we kind of put piece together that it's like oh this is probably like the first release album like the first album release for chum or something and this is her recalling that and it takes us a second to realize that and before we can even get settled in there uh, one of the Cham girls, like, pats her on the shoulder, pats Mima on the shoulder. And then we instantly cut back to the talent agency where where Rumi is doing the same thing. And all of a sudden, Mima's disoriented and is like, whoa. So she just got brought back to reality um, in the same way. Uh, it's, it's just a really clever editing moment uh, where we jump from, we jump in space and time, but the transition doesn't feel as jarring as it probably should. Um, at this point, uh, 
Mima gets a new script. She has more lines. Uh, so her management's doing, they're doing work. Like her, her management doesn't mistreat her. Like they, they put her in some hairy positions, but uh, you know, they give a shit kind of. Um, and we get another one of those, those layered reality moments where Mima is walking down the street and one of those frog faced guys uh, leers over her shoulder and starts walking alongside her and approaches her and is like, Hey, I'm a, like, are you a model? Would you like to be? I'm a talent scout. And like your initial gut reaction to this is to be like, Oh, fuck you, dude. <laughs> um, however, somebody yells cut. And as it so happens, this is just a take uh, from the filming of the show, double blind. This is fucking tricky stuff. Uh, you need to be paying attention. Um, and at this point, we, we cut to the, the producers of the show having a conversation, and uh, they're talking, they're kind of alluding to some stuff. They aren't speaking in direct terms. Uh, this is pretty common Japanese language, but um, basically the writer has something in mind for Mima, and he's not explicitly saying what it is. However, based on his tone, we can infer that like it's probably not something that she'd actually want to do. Uh, and then we cut to Mima, and she's reading a script, and it's like a, a low angle where we can't even really see her face behind the, the script booklet that she's pouring over. And uh, as it so happens, they want they want her to do a rape scene on the TV show. And it needs to be said, rape is one of those things that um, you got to be really careful with um, in, in any media. Um, it's... It's like one of the most inflammatory things that you can put in a story, and you really, really, really need to make sure that it's warranted. And if you, if it is, then you really, really, really need to make sure that it's presented in a, in the right manner. I don't know what that is, but I know it's it's probably the fastest, easiest way to piss off an audience, um, aside from maybe kicking a dog. Um, which I remember joking with Kyle when we talked about this. Um, we did we. We are in the middle of a, a franchise called John Wick, wherein about 5,000 people have been shot over the kicking of a dog. Um, and most people seem to be okay with that. So um, don't put rape scenes in your movies and don't have dogs get kicked unless you're really fucking sure you know how to handle it well uh, from a writing standpoint. Um, so yeah, the, the writers of Double Blind want, want Mimi, uh, Mima to do a rape scene. And uh, Tato Koro is like he he wants to do it, although you can tell he's being pressured because it seems like there's a seems like there's some arm twisting happening here where it's like, hey, uh, have her do this or she's out, something along those lines. And Rumi is, of course, definitely against it. And Tato Koro again is very all about saving face at this point. And uh, Mima kind of agrees, and. I haven't been talking about until now, but uh, it needs to be said, Mima's demeanor in conversation with pr pretty much everyone she communicates with in this story, I hadn't thought about it until now, but pretty much everyone she communicates with in this movie has some position of authority or power over her, um, and she kind of plays into it. Um, she has, as an idol, uh, she has a bit of a fabricated personality and and in her interactions with the people around her it feels like maybe she hasn't entirely cast that aside like she's still kind of in idol mode and part of being like that idealized like young woman is to be agreeable and and perky 
um, regardless of the circumstances. So, like, when she's agreeing to do this rape scene, she's uh, kind of absurdly upbeat about it. Uh, she even gives, like, a, like, manipulative, like, nervous laugh, like a, like a teehee kind of laugh about it. And, of course, the, the stock Japanese gambaru-yo, like, I'm going to do my best. And it it's uncomfortable because it's never she's never called out on it but watching watching the film and having some understanding of japanese culture it's like i don't think she i don't think she's as comfortable with things as she's letting on like there there's no way that can be the case um she's just kind of she just doesn't want to rock the boat basically um however it seems like she lacks the tools maybe i guess at this point anyway uh to do that when when it's probably what she actually wants to do um again what's meant is very rarely actually explicitly said um anyway we cut back to mima on the train and uh, her reflection turns into her idol self so like her but wearing the the outfit that she was wearing at the concert scene from the beginning of the film and it says like i absolutely object to doing that rape scene like i absolutely won't do it that's not good and it's kind of a weird moment because it's a little bit supernatural and she was just sitting like kind of idle on a train and all of a sudden herself in her reflection starts yelling at her uh so this lady might be losing her mind uh not a hundred percent sure but something's wrong in her mind uh, anyway we're back on the set and uh mima is in a maid outfit at a strip club and the sequence is fairly long it's probably like three to five minutes long and uh it's very uncomfortable because it is it is a rape scene um and we cut back and forth between her on the set doing the scene and then like the production crew like viewing everything through monitors and uh in that in that room uh, her managers, Tadokoro and Rumi, are both in there, and they both look real, really uncomfortable in their own way uh, during this entire sequence. Um, Tadokoro just—he can't even really look at what's happening. Like his his gaze is turned aside. He has his hand running through his hair, and his face—he just looks mortified. Like he's like, "Oh man, this is a bad choice." Uh, Rumi, on the other hand, her her like fists are balled up, and she's like, she's anger crying. Like, she's mad crying because uh, she is really deeply upset about what's happening. Um, but, yeah, the, the way the scene progresses is basically Mima's doing, like, a strip club, like a strip tease of some sort. Uh, the manager of, again, this is all simulated uh, in the reality of the film. Um, the manager, like, gets pulled down from the stage. Uh, the the crowd of frog-faced dudes all like like get whipped up into a fervor one of them mounts her and starts doing some rapey stuff and uh kyle mentioned that uh part of what makes this scene effective um in on many levels is the performance of the voice actress like she really goes for it and uh it has a level of reality to it that makes it doubly uncomfortable and also by the way kyle apparently watched this movie on his phone on an airplane while whilst seated next to a japanese man <laughs> um uh, he said he was kind of like hitting the skip 10 seconds ahead button on the phone uh throughout a few sequences and some of the racier sequences in this film uh, i don't blame him uh pro tip don't 
don't watch anything Trevor tells you to watch uh, in a public place. <laughs> just just don't do it. Um, but one of the more interesting moments in this sequence is uh, when when one of the when the guy is on top of Mima. Um, there's actually a cut called uh, where where the crew, the director, actually calls cut, and everyone in the room freezes, and the the music that's blasting, the strip club music that's blasting, uh, just stops instantly, and everyone freezes in their place, including her who has her like her head hanging over the edge of a stage, with a dude on top of her, and then like the camera repositions, and and then they say go again and everything just goes right back to how it was um this is the reality of a film set but it's it's really surreal and definitely very creepy in fact the guy that's on top of her when they're in the middle of that cut um he actually like whispers to her like i'm sorry uh i would probably do the same thing uh, although uh, i seriously doubt i would be doing this kind of scene in the first place if i was an actor uh, a little too uncomfortable for my taste um but yeah, Mima goes dead-eyed at one point. Like she, they do the thing with the animation where her irises, like uh, the color, kind of fades out of them. Um, and there's some really disorienting shots from her, like upside-down perspective of the crowd. Um, however, there's like a fade to white, and and the crowd noise turns into chants of uh, Mimarin, so like the the nickname that they had for her when she was an idol. Um, so I don't know if she like lost lost time. Uh, as a uh, what was it Ed Norton said in a primal primal instinct I think oh, I'm not sure if that's actually the title of that movie but I really I really like that movie <laughs> um, anyway uh, we cut back to the dressing room Mima's alone uh, she says nothing but her body language tells us she's just kind of beat like she's not in a happy place right now uh, but then she gets in the back seat of Mr. Tadokoro's car and she's her perky upbeat idle self and uh Tadokoro, you can tell, like, he looks back at her and he's trying to apologize. Uh, but her demeanor throws him off. And he kind of, like, cuts himself off and he's like, well, I mean, if you're if you're not upset, let's get some frosty chocolate milkshakes. Um, and then he drives her off to get food. Um, so basically this is a, a neat character moment where it's like Mima's burying her feelings and Tadokoro is aware that she's doing that, but he can't he can't confront her about it. He's just, he doesn't have the willpower or the strength to do it. So he's like, eh, I mean, if she's not going to bring it up, then I'm not going to. So they're they're having a staring contest with each other. Uh, by the way, the stalker watches them as they drive away. Uh, Mima gets home, and she sees that her fish have died. Uh, it's like the first thing she does when she comes into her apartment. And she's, she's perky. Um, the first time we see her with her fish, she's like very, very happy and excitable when she's feeding them. Um, and this time she like sits down, she still has that demeanor about her, but then she sees that all her fish have died. Um, and the instant she sees that, she just explodes into tears. Um, it's like that was the trigger. That's like all the layers, like all the all the safety guards are just down now. And she kind of goes into, I called it a Catwoman-esque fit, a uh, Batman Returns Catwoman fit. Uh, where she kind of like stomps around her apartment and starts just breaking shit and and bawling, uh, and she's she's a wreck. I mean, for pretty obvious reasons, that was probably really hard to do, very traumatic. Um, and I don't even know if she's that experienced an actress. Uh, so stuff like that's probably I don't know something that not everybody's equipped to do. Um, and then we get like a really to me like one of the more important pieces of 
spoken dialogue in the film uh, where she's like collapsed in her bed and she buries her face into a pillow. Uh, it's worth noting that she does that to muffle what she's saying. So she's still kind of like fighting herself, uh, not not wanting to acknowledge herself, I guess. But she yells into a pillow like, of course, I didn't want to do it, uh, but I couldn't trouble all the people that brought me this far. So that's like 100% confirmation that she was putting on a happy face uh, just to just to not anger anger or upset you know her her coworkers basically her management uh, so this is her just not having the willpower to rock the boat when it was probably entirely appropriate to do so um, however she's interrupted by idol Mima uh, I call it idol Mima because it's it's like a projection and it has like an ethereal glow to it but it's basically Mima but again in her uh, outfit from the beginning of the film uh, like the dress and everything uh, Idol Mima interrupts and yeah <laughs> so she's seeing things now uh, great, even better um, and then we finally get to see uh, the stalker in his in his natural habitat and uh, Kyle and I had a nice little conversation about about the construction of his uh, his perv dungeon because uh, it's it's very detailed and it's a uh, it's very well constructed. Like somebody somebody did some research and put some thought into this. Basically, his 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 room is just like it's the lighting consists of just a com- just a computer monitor. Um, there's like magazine ads and magazines and books just like piled from the floor to the ceiling, so it has like a hoarder's vibe to it. Um, but it's all just Mima products, so just like photo books of Mima and then there's posters lining every every inch of the walls and the ceiling and then we learn here I believe that he is the uh, the admin of the Mima's room website cut to a montage of Mima doing interviews um, most of these interviews seem to be about her uh, her transition in her career like transitioning away from being a like a, a song and dance idol to a, like a hardcore actress of some sort and then we cut back to the otaku, and they're they're like pondering the new new developments. Um, and again, uh, just like watching the show that they actually had no real interest in, strictly to see Mima, uh, they seem to have an opinion about it, like a negative opinion about the transition in her career. However, they still they're still watching, like they're still watching everything she does. Um, and of course, the stalker is privy to this conversation. He's he probably I guess he just hangs out in the same place they do or something. Maybe he uses them as like a a shadow esque like like communication pipeline of some sort. Um, and then Mima checks the website. Uh, there's there is a single diary entry in there that just re- consists of the phrase "help me" over and over and over and over and over again. And at this point, Idol Mima shows up through the computer. And uh, taunts her and says, like, nobody likes idols with tarnished reputations. Um, from now on, I'll be the light and you'll be in the shadow. And, like, the, the really heavy one, nobody likes you anymore. And it needs to be said, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, what Idol Mima is saying, like, when I, when I read it back, it comes across as kind of childish. Um, these are not, like, these are not, like, a, you know, fuck your mother kind of insults. Uh, not in not in you know American culture, <laughs> but again like Japanese culture, she's kind of like speaking the truth. She's being blunt in a way that's that's foreign to traditional conversation. 
so even though the tone and the delivery is kind of childish at the same time it's she's saying the stuff that you don't say and it comes across as antagonistic and a little bit scary um i can see how like it probably wouldn't translate that well um but anyway mima flips the fuck out of obviously a her projection came through her computer and started insulting her uh yeah that's a little creepy and then we get an iconic shot um trailer shot uh used in a lot of the promotion for the film of uh idol mima with her angelic glow like casually skipping across uh street lamps above the like through through the city uh should look it up if you haven't seen it it's well animated and it's a, it's a really cool shot uh and then we transition to a parking garage and uh, Mr. Shibuya, the uh, the writer, uh, he's parking his car. Uh, there's a bloody poster for Double Blind, like, against the wall where he parks his car. And he doesn't seem terribly worried about it. Um, I would be deeply concerned. In fact, I'd probably just leave the parking garage if I saw that. He doesn't seem to give a shit, though. Um, and then we can hear one of Mima's songs echoing through the garage. And uh, we get a suspenseful scene where he's like, Who's there? Is anybody there? Then he goes up to an elevator and the doors open and there's a sh- there's a, a shitty little boombox playing one of Mima's songs just sitting in the middle of the elevator. And the audio quality here is kind of charming because it, it sounds like a shitty boombox. Like if you've ever heard what like an audio cassette playing through a shitty boombox sounds like, that's it. Um, and then the next shot is uh, the same elevator doors opening only now the boombox is gone. And uh, Shibuya's eyes have been punctured, and he like collapses in, in a heap in the middle of the elevator. It's pretty brutal. Then we get kind of a, a nothing little scene where I think we're just trying to hammer home at this point that Mima is unstable. It's just a nothing little scene where Mima is like sad in the back seat of a Tadokoro's car, and they're in a tunnel. Um, well, maybe it's not a nothing scene because she actually appears to be depressed. She actually appears to be tired. She actually appears to be concerned. Whereas normally the way she interacts with her management is like she puts on a front of being like, yeah, I'm all about it. I'll do my best. Um, but here she's sitting in the back seat and like her face, her body language, even her even her tone kind of suggests that like she's just done. And just when she seems like she's poised to like make a breakthrough and maybe like fess up to the fact that she's in a really tricky spot right now, uh, she sees Idol Mima again, and there's a funny little moment where I think Idol Mima like mouths to her through the through the window, like "You're no good." <laughs> then Mima hops out of the car, and we get a we get another Highlander transition where a, a car zips past the camera, and uh, as the car passes, uh, all of a sudden we're in a different place, and now we're uh, we're backstage at a uh, at a chum show, and. Uh, this is actually a nothing little scene because the two chum girls are talking shit about Mima behind her back. Uh, however, Mima is never made aware of this, so it's like, what's the point of this? It needs to be said the performances are pretty good here, though. Like, it's kind of funny <laughs> in a not very funny movie. Um, and then we cut to Mima in a bed, and there's soft lighting up the ass here, and uh, she's being photographed. Um, she is doing like a pretty much a, a nude photography session like a model modeling session with with this photographer who has like frog face to the extreme um to an extreme that no one else in this film has um his eyes are super widely spaced to the point that he almost has like not even frog face but more like deer face 
Um, by the way, he has like Spike Spiegel's haircut. I don't know if that was intentional, but anyway, um, and his eyes like face outward too, like they're they're crossed and everything. It's really it's really weird. And also, he has like a lecherous look about him too. So this is it's pretty evident that he's uh, maybe enjoying himself a little too much at this photo session. Um, and needs to be said, uh, some of the nudity on display here is not something you see in Japanese media all the time. Uh, so this is probably one of those scenes that Kyle was uh, fast-forwarding through when he was on the plane watching this film. Um, and then we get a scene here where... I actually talked about this with Kyle, where I wasn't entirely certain uh, what where the, where the walls of reality lied. Um, this was an instance where I was a little bit stumped, but we came to an understanding that I, th I think it was imagined. I don't think this actually happened. But basically, uh, the two chum girls um, were, were cutting back and forth between scenes here, but uh, one of the chum, the two chum girls are doing a song, and it's playing over the proceedings. And we keep cutting back to them at a concert, and at one point, Mima shows up at the concert, but she has that like ethereal glow about her, which suggests that it's not the real Mima. Um, but I noticed that the two chom girls have like a concerned look on their face. Like when she steps in, it, it's like somebody's intruding or something. But anyway, the, uh, the stalker is at the concert. And uh, he has this like look of ecstasy on his face where he looks like he's actually in tears of joy. Um, and then at some point, like the idol Mima hops off the stage and into the crowd. And then the scene just kind of ends. So... I wasn't entirely sure, but Kyle and I both kind of agreed that uh, I think this was just the, the security guard, the stalker's uh, imagination. Like, he was just projecting that. So it's apparently some sort of shared delusion that both he and Mima share or something. Um, and then we get uh, something that, you know, most people on the internet will tell you is the, the quote-unquote Aronofsky shot, the Darren Aronofsky shot. Uh, so apparently... Darren Aronofsky has seen Satoshi Kon's movies. Uh, I guess he paid a chunk of change to, to license and distribute Perfect Blue in the West, um, largely to protect himself, because I guess he stole or well, borrowed a shot from this movie. Uh, and thematically, it needs to be said, uh, I don't think I don't think it's a ripoff, but Black Swan um, does bear a strong resemblance to Perfect Blue in a lot of ways, in particular how it explores the nature of performance uh, and how it how it affects us as people how it affects our psychology and our understanding of ourselves um but yeah the aronofsky shot is a apparently a shot that was in requiem for a dream which is a movie that kyle has been threatening for a very long time now to have me watch uh, i haven't seen it i have seen some of uh, aronofsky's other films but basically it's a it's a shot in the bathtub uh, it's a downward angle shot of a uh, Mima in the fetal position with her face underwater. So the camera's looking directly down her back and the back of her head. Um, and it has like an amber quality to the lighting because the, the bathtub is like beige and the, the lighting kind of gives everything like an amber glow to it. Anyway, I guess the shot was directly replicated in a Requiem for a Dream. I think the actress was Jennifer Connelly. Um, and then the follow-up to the shot is uh, Mima's face underwater uh, shouting again into the water, again through a filter. Uh, before it was a pillow, now it's water. Uh, she's just, like, shouting in, in frustration to think it's the equivalent of, like, you son of a bitch or you bastards. Um, 
And at this point, we also I also noted that her apartment is still trashed. Like, she hasn't fixed it yet. And uh, her photo book comes out. Uh, she did do, like, full frontal nudity, uh, which, again, not something you see every day in Japanese, in Japanese publications. And then we get a sequence that's kind of creepy, um, but well done, where uh, the stalker goes to the same place that he was going to to meet up with the well, not meet up with, but, like, hover around the otaku guys. And it's, like, a newsstand of some sort. And he buys, like, an entire satchel of uh, of her photo books. And I interpreted this as, like, him trying to protect her. And this is what I meant by, like, the concept of, like, a a, a purity, I guess, to, to idol culture. Whereas it's, like, in his mind, he's like, oh, no, that's that's dirty. Like... Sure, I probably jerk off to her all the time, and I I consume all of her products. But it's like, no, no, she can't. She can't like be nude. Like she can't take it all off. That's just that's just lewd. You don't do that. And it's, you know, I I can't abide other people appreciating her. Only I can appreciate her. Other if it's anyone else, then it's dirty. Something along those lines. Um, so he has a def definite obsession and psychosis about him. Um. At this point, we get a scene. Uh, by the way, there's a funny little moment where, when he's buying all these books, where the cashier is just this like little like teenage guy with like glasses that's probably half his half his size that just gives him a look like, uh, "You sure you want to buy all of them? I mean, they you know they're all identical, right?" <laughs> but it's there's no words spoken, but just the body language and the facial expression was comical to a certain extent. Um. But at this point, uh, there's a weird sequence here where the uh, the stalker is in his lair. He's at his computer, and we see someone writing him an email or, or an instant message. And uh, whoever is writing to him is planting the seeds uh, of this concept of Mima, the one who's doing the, the nude photo shoots and double blind as an imposter of some sort. And there's a really great sequence here where he's reading the email to himself, uh, out loud, by the way, um, and it transitions like from his voice to to Mima's voice reading it, and all the posters adorning his walls and his ceilings, uh, ceiling, uh, start talking at him. So like dozens of Mimas start talking to him, and cherry on top is Idol Mima appears like hanging over his shoulder and like groping him. So he he's nuts. <laughs> um, cut to a shipping yard. And, uh, Mima is doing a scene with Eri, uh, and as it so happens, the plot of Double Blind, this particular uh, story arc or whatever, involves dissociative identity disorder, uh, DID, uh, sometimes mislabeled as, like, what, multiple personality disorder? Um, and then we get, we start to get a sequence here where we get some really tricky fucking editing, <laughs> uh, so pay attention. Um Mima is headed to like what appears to be like a radio station where the the other two chom girls are doing a podcast or <laughs> not a podcast but like a, a radio show where they're basically they're plugging their their new album or whatever or their concerts or whatever and uh, Mima seems like she's going there to like say hello or congratulate them or something um, but like like's been happening pretty much every time we've seen her in the movie in the past 20 minutes uh, Idol Mima shows up. And we get a we get a nice little foot chase here. 
uh, and it, the choreography is really interesting because Idol Mima, with her angelic glow and everything like that, comes across as just that, like an apparition, not a physical thing, because she she never runs, she never exerts herself. She always she has a perpetual smile. Her arms are kind of like clasped behind her back, and she she skips, but she like flies at inhuman speed. And meanwhile, Mima chasing her is like colliding with people in the hallways and on the streets. And her body language suggests that she's, you know, both exhausted and exerting herself greatly. Like she looks like she's in a panic. But the person that she's pursuing is just kind of effortlessly guiding, gliding along. It's, it's really fascinating. And it, it plays really well. Um, needs to be said here, the music is, is excellent. Um, it's kind of, there's this, uh, like weird moaning choir uh, that's kind of like the signature melody in the film that uh, they used it extensively to promote the film. And it's a very good piece of music. Unconventional as all hell, but uh, enjoyable if you ask me. Um, at one point, Mima falls down the stairs chasing this apparition. And uh, we get something that I, I call it the, the Jurassic Park reflection trick, where basically it's a, it's a reflection, like a reflected shot. Um, that it reminded me of um, when Lex in a Jurassic Park in, in the raptor scene with, in the kitchen uh, uses a reflect, reflective surface to cause a raptor to bang its head on some kitchen counter. Uh, I, I'm doing a poor job of explaining it, but if you've seen that shot, and I know you have, um, you, kn- you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then Mima runs into traffic while chasing this apparition, and... Uh, a truck starts blaring its horn and she's kind of like blinded by its headlights she puts her hands up to like you know try to protect herself and then just as the light is enveloping her in slow motion bam we're back in bed okay (laughs) that's a hell of a way to transition away from that then Rumi comes to visit and Mima asks like has has anyone been harassing me and Rumi just kind of gives her a look like uh I'm not a, I don't know, like, <laughs> like how, how would I know what's happening to you? Um, there's a really cool shot here where Mima's kind of, like, lamenting on, on her situation in the past few days, and she mentions that she feels the culprit might be, like, her repressed self, and the reason why I say this is a cool shot is because she's, it's like a profile shot of her face, of Mima's face, and then the camera, like, pans along her face, and as it's getting to like the back of her head, a hand reaches in and pats her on the shoulder, and we hear Eri, the uh, the actress from Double Blind, speaking. And all of a sudden, we we pull back and we're on the set of the of the TV show. However, the the line that Mima had just said about the culprit maybe her her repressed self, I mean the the concept of Double Blind, this particular story arc, has to do with DID. So what she's saying applies to both situations that she's in, and the way we edit away from that is is very smooth. It's pretty cool. Um, but then we hear a director call cut, and yeah, we're back at the shipping yard. And in fact, some of the crew members actually tease Mima for going off script, like, what the fuck are you talking about? So her mind is apparently in more than one place at a time. Like, she's losing herself. She's losing, she's losing time. Uh, I can't do the Ed Norton voice, but... Um, yeah, uh, take two, and then bam, we're back in bed. So again, we jump from place and time. 
uh, back to the apartment. And Rumi's there. Mima uses the expression like, oh, uh, it's been a long time, or I haven't seen you in a while. And then Rumi gives her like stink face and says, I was just here yesterday. And at this point, you know, Mima's like, oh, like, like I'm I have no idea what's real anymore and in fact she crushes her teacup in her hand and blood starts pouring out of her palms and her fingers and she just kind of gives like a crestfallen look down at her palms and uh, she mutters to herself like is this blood real and you know as the viewer of the film at this point you kind of have to ask yourself like I actually don't know <laughs> I really don't um, and then that uh, plinky plunky like ultra subtle piano music starts up again. Uh, we get a fisheye shot of Mima in the dark reading her uh, Mima's room website. Uh, and at one point she's reading one of the diary entries and uh, she mutters to herself, oh, I, I guess I went to Harajuku today. Uh, so she is she is definitely fucking losing it because uh, now she's she's reading an online journal published by someone who isn't her and she's kind of like, assuming that that's what her day was because she honestly doesn't know anymore um so she's detaching from reality she's definitely losing herself if she ever had it in the first place so we cut back to a uh, double blind and we can tell based on the editing here that we're watching the playback of an edited tv show so this is no longer mima giving a performance this is a performance that's already in the can if that makes sense um, and then the lens gets pulled back, as we've done a few times in the film up to this point. And uh, all of a sudden, we're in the, the photographer, uh, the photographer who did her nude photo shoot. Uh, we're in his, his home, and he's watching Double Blind. Uh, and then there's a ring at the, at the doorbell. There's a doorbell ring, and a pizza man shows up. Uh, and this was a sequence that I really enjoyed talking to Kyle about because it's absolutely brutal. Um, the pizza man murders the photographer uh he pizza man brought an ice pick uh the first blow is a uh, upward stab to one of the eyeballs one of his his frog slash deer man eyeballs and as soon as that thing gets yanked out of his eye oh man it's a gusher um yeah i'm not gonna go into too much detail because it's not as fun to do by yourself uh, you need a buddy to play off of um but yeah uh this sequence uh absolutely brutal it's a brutal stabbing sequence with an ice pick lots of blood lots of gore i enjoyed the hell out of it uh and it needs to be said there's an iconic shot here of a uh, when the pizza man is on top of this fella uh stabbing him on the ground um a, a projector gets uh, jostled and it projects like slides of mima's nude photo shoot onto onto the pizza man uh and onto the wall as as the pizza man's doing like downward thrusts on the photographer's body uh and at some point the pizza man in in the span of one one cut uh all of a sudden it's mima doing the stabbing and we see her clear as day uh and this shot this sequence of her doing the downward thrust is something again something that was used to promote this film um somebody else take three bam we are back in bed and Mima is waking up at this point uh, the phone rings in her apartment Mr. Tadokoro calls and he says to her hey uh, that photographer you worked with uh, Murano he's been murdered he's been moited and uh, Mima 
kind of springs out of bed and she's like, oh, fuck, somebody got murdered. This doesn't happen every day. Um, she behaves like a person. Uh, she heads to her closet to get dressed and uh, there's a bag full of bloody clothes in there. And even before she can put her clothes on and fully react to, you know, finding a bag full of blood, bloody clothes in her home, uh, the doorbell starts ringing and like the fucking paparazzi are there. And they're, like, reaching through the crack in the door because she still has, like, the chain on the door and everything, so she hasn't let them in. And they have tons of questions for her. And we get a shot from the doorway, like, looking at her, and she's just totally dead-eyed. Like, she doesn't even have a reaction to this because I don't think she... Even if, and it's a big if, if she was involved in any of this, I don't think she has the tools to recollect any of it. Um, And we jump back to the TV set. And Mima mutters to herself when when she's basically like sitting alone in a corner, maybe that truck hit me and everything is a dream. And uh, we, the audience at this point, are thinking to ourselves, I mean, I'm open to it. <laughs> like, like I don't know what's happening anymore. So, so uh, yeah, maybe maybe this is all a dream. Um, it's not, as far as I know. <laughs> um, but at this point in the show, apparently Mima is supposed to do a murder scene for the show. And uh, she's in, like, a schoolgirl outfit. She's placed up on a stage, and one of the crew members kind of, like, mentions to her offhand. So, like, so this is supposed to be, like, a murder scene. So, like, that heavy breathing you were doing during rehearsal, like, really amp it up because you just murdered a guy. And it's like, what are we doing, guys? (laughs) And then uh, the corpse, uh, whatever extra or whoever this is supposed to be, uh, is splayed out on a stage and then kind of looks up and it has its eyes punctured, and based on the construction of the face and the fact that it has a shitting grin, um, it's pretty obvious that it's the photographer. It's Murano. And then the director calls, Yo, Stato! And then, bam! We are back in bed again. This uh, editing trickery is a little frustrating, but it's also fascinating. Um, it does get frustrating. Uh, trust me. <laughs> but But it is fascinating, if you ask me. Uh, and then there's an amazing shot uh, where Mima sits up into frame in her apartment. And then we hear Eri from off screen ask, Are you okay? Uh, to which Mima responds by turning her head. And as the camera follows her motion, like as she turns her head, um, we transition from the apartment to the set again. It's, it's all done in, in one take, one cut. Um, it's one of those transitions that's like, yeah, uh, I could I could see contemporary filmmakers like in live action um, really relishing the opportunity to do things like that because it, it, things like that are just always eye catching because it, it's like watching a magic trick or more appropriately, it's like watching a magic trick and getting getting like the slightest inkling of how it was done as you're watching it happen where it's like, oh, yeah. So you get the satisfaction. It's like the satisfaction of opening a opening a package or something where it's like, yeah, I got that. It's like, I, I, that cool thing that just happened, I got that. Satisfying. Um, by the way, there's also a two-way mirror behind Mima, so, like, there's there's there are layers to this production. <laughs> um, and Mima looks into the two-way mirror, and she mutters to herself, I'm a pop idol. No, uh, maybe an actress. And the plot of this particular episode, Double Blind, is apparently about DID and about how Mima's character in the show retreated into a new identity 
uh, to survive the trauma of the rape that we saw um, acted earlier in the in the film. Uh, so what's what's real? I don't know anymore. Like art is imitating life to the extreme at this point. Somebody yells, "Cut!" We redo the entire scene, and this is this is a weird this is a weird like this is something I would expect Mamoru Oshii to do because I uh, what was it Ghost in the Shell two in a sense um, they actually did that where they did a they replayed an entire sequence multiple times in a row I can't forget I can't remember how many times they did it but basically we do that trick and this is again uh, Satoshi Kon's like fascination with dreams and the nature of dreams and dream logic and how oftentimes there is a lack of logic to them um we redo this entire scene where mima looks wistfully into the mirror eri steps out of the room and explains to us the audience about did and then the only difference the only difference is that mima says her line slightly differently instead of saying uh i'm an actress she says no maybe i'm a model um, this is something that actually gets done in film all the time where it's like you even if something is filmed exactly the way that a director wanted it of course you're going to do another take for safety purposes or for editing purposes and this is a, this is two actors delivering performances and changing exactly one thing from one take to the next uh, it's it's really bizarre to see in an edited film but it's, when you think about it it's like huh that actually makes sense and then everyone applauds. We get a congratulatory, like, that's a wrap, folks. And the cast, like the cast and crew, all the people on the set, everybody applauds. And Mima stands up from her, her position on the set, and she just looks bewildered. <laughs> and we do, like, a full 360 shot around her head. And she just has this dopey look about her, like, I... I don't even know what I did. I just said some stuff that I was feeling in the moment. <laughs> um was that part of the script i don't know <laughs> uh so mima is now with her management and there's a antag there's a antagonistic hallway shot here where it's it's like off kilter so it has like a dutch angle to it uh it's an overhead shot and she looks very small in the frame it's a very long hallway too and there's a lot of reflections too uh, reflections are apparently a aesthetic theme throughout the movie um mentioned it several times now but um the stalker shows up here and uh he and mima finally have a confrontation uh it's it's backstage it just so happens to be on the same stage where uh, mima did that rape sequence for the show uh so we're at the studio and uh the stalker assaults her with a at knife point and uh they have a physical exchange and a verbal exchange here and uh they tussle and I don't think it's intentional on the part of the stalker, um, but her clothes are like progressively torn away. Uh, she gets pretty naked and it gets pretty uncomfortable. Um, although it is kind of funny to me that the music is, is meant to be intense, but I couldn't help but think of like Mortal Kombat, like the Mortal Kombat theme, uh, which was also the case during the, the pizza man stabbing too. But it's, I don't know, it's a product of its time like mid mid to late 90s um but yeah at some point uh the stalker gets on top of her and seems like he's he's got some ill intent um but before anything can really happen uh, before he can get anything done uh she brains him with a hammer um she gets a hold of a hammer whacks him in the temple 
uh, there's a like a almost comical like pause before he reacts to it, and he kind of like slumps off of her and dies very pathetically. By the way, it needs to be said his speaking voice is a lot higher than you would expect. He has a very squeaky voice, and I think it kind of like completes the package with his character, where it's like, yes, he's he's menacing, yes, he's psychotic, but he's also kind of pathetic, and now he's dead, which is for the best. Um, and then Mima stands up, and a spotlight appears on her as she's like out of breath and panting, and then just like was the case on the set of Double Blind, uh, a film crew is standing in front of her and starts applauding her. And again, she just has this look about her like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't, it, is this real? And again, we, the audience, are in the same position. Um, cut to the backstage area again, and Rumi finds Mima uh, in the same disheveled state she was in when she had her tussle with, uh, with the stalker. Uh, which makes us, which leads us to believe that 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 exchange, that assault, happened, and she did kill that guy. Uh, but then Rumi goes backstage to the to the set with Mima, and they do not find the body. So now, like we, the audience, are a hundred percent confused. Um, Rumi takes Mima in her car, and uh, I noted a choice exchange here where. Uh, Rumi says to Mima when they're driving on the highway together, I'm taking you back to Mima's room. Not I'm taking you home. I'm taking you back to Mima's room. Um, which I guess is supposed to be a clue of things to come. For sure. Uh, for sure, for sure. So we arrive at the apartment. And it's evident that Rumi's in there. However, she's behind a, a screen door. So we can't really see her. Um, and then Mima is sits up in bed and and decides she needs to call Mr. Tadokoro, presumably to let him know where she is and that she's okay or something. Um, And as she crosses the frame, um, both Kyle and I noticed that her her fish uh, were back. Like, the tank was full of fish, and they were all alive. Um, When she places the phone call, we cut away to uh, the backstage area of where we just were. And we see uh, Mr. Tadokoro and the stalker, like, dead, laying next to each other. Um, I believe both of their eyes are punctured. Uh, so I don't know who did this. Um, I, I have an idea, but it's never confirmed exactly who did this or even if it actually happened. Um, but they did. Uh, and then the creepy choir music starts up again, that mumbly choir. And we get a cool moment here where if you were paying attention, um, and I hope you were, uh, we get basically the same, one of the same shots, like from the exact same angle uh, as we saw at the beginning of the film when Mima first got home from the concert. Um, it's basically just a establishing shot of the interior of her apartment. And we see that her apartment is arranged exactly how it was before she left, before she left Chomp complete with the poster up uh the even the stuffed animals are arranged to the foot of the bed as they were before and remember uh, her apartment was was in a was in a state of disrepair it was it was turned upside down when she had her cat woman fu- uh tantrum um and also the fish are back so literally everything is as it was at the start of the movie and mima mutters to herself this isn't my room 
And then Rumi steps out from behind the screen door and announces, no, this is Mima's room. And then we get the the grand reveal of the story that is, I think, the weakest part of it. And it, it frustrates me to this day. In fact, the, the last note I have in my notes is a horrible ending uh, because I really thoroughly enjoy this film, but its closing moments, I, I feel, are pretty pretty awful actually and i don't know maybe maybe um they were maybe this is how things ended in the novel that the that this animation is based off of maybe they had to maybe they're like obligated to stick with that story or something but if you ask me this is a shitty way to end things because it doesn't it doesn't address a lot of the themes and the concepts that we've been exploring throughout the film in fact like this is this feels like it comes out of left field. It doesn't really explain itself in any regard. Like, I'd be fine with things if, if like, there was that trademark, like, exposition speech moment where the, the villain has to explain everything, that all their machinations throughout the film. But we don't really get that. We just get some bullshit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, Rumi, as it so happens... Uh, seems to be revealing herself as having some form of DID. Uh, she is dressed as Mima in a, in a red dress, a skimpy red dress, like an idol outfit, just like Mima wore at the beginning of the film. Um, and we do this neat editing trick where every time she and Mima are having a conversation from this point forward, uh, she's represented as idol Mima. So like Mima's figure exactly uh, with complete with ethereal glow. However, whenever we see Rumi in a reflective, like in a reflection, um, it's it's Rumi who is needs to be said uh, a little heavier than Mima. Also, she has an unfortunate haircut, and also she has those weirdly widely spaced eyes. They don't look alike at all. Uh, so, what I glean from this is that Rumi sees herself as Mima. She's like projecting, she kind of stole, she co-opted like the idol Mima personality and and placed it on top of herself. So she buried herself and replaced it with idol Mima. So the image of idol Mima that we see is, is like a some sort of shared delusion because apparently Mima was seeing the same thing independent of, of Rumi. Because there's no way Rumi could have been in the room for all those instances in which Mima was flipping out and seeing this apparition. So there's three different characters who are somehow seeing the same, who are somehow sharing the same delusion in some way. We had the stalker, Mimania. We had we have Rumi, who sees herself as this idol character. And then we have Mima, who is haunted by and taunted by, by this character. Uh even in dream logic, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> uh, which is why this is frustrating for me. Um, anyway, uh, the, things get physical pretty quickly between these two ladies. Um, Rumi uh, whips out the ice pick, which, based on the fact that she's using an ice pick, we can kind of assume that it was her that murdered the photographer, and by extension, and the the nature of her uh, also going for the eyes on uh, on Shibuya and uh, Tadokoro and uh, the stalker, I guess we're led to believe that she did all the murders in this film. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like maybe the stalker did some of them too, 
but I'm not sure. It's never it's never explicitly spelled out to us. Um, we get a weird moment here where Mima is on her back and she reaches up to like choke Rumi. And it needs to be said like because Rumi has that weird like frog face like those dimensions to her face when she's being choked it looks truly fucking hideous. <laughs> um, and in response, Rumi like does a downward stab onto Mima's shoulder. Uh, in all the commotion, the fish tank is smashed. Those poor fish, they died again. Um, and then Mima hops out onto her balcony and uh, does like a suicide dive to the next roof and doesn't roll an ankle or anything. Uh, Rumi somehow follows. And uh, this is a really cool foot chase sequence where, uh, again, Rumi is represented at a distance as a, as idol Mima and she moves like idol Mima. So she's skipping along every, every movement she makes is like unbelievably smooth and easy and agile. Uh, however, there are moments here during this chase where we see, we see the idol Mima's uh, reflection in like a window or what, or some sort of reflective surface. And every time we do, uh, we see the real Rumi uh, and, you know, based on her build, uh, it's pretty obvious that she, she her cardio is not up. Um, so there's a part where she's chasing Mima, and we see idle Mima in the foreground looking like la 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 la. But in the mirror, uh, we see Rumi like huffing and puffing and looking absolutely psychotic <laughs> and out of breath, more importantly. Um, anyway, at some point, the ice pick gets ditched in favor of an umbrella. Uh, Mima gets jabbed in the gut with it. Uh, tough, tough lady. Um, and at some point, Rumi has Mima covered, uh, cornered, and she has her like pressed up against a wall. And there's a exchange here that I think is meant to be very meaningful. But at this point, you've completely lost me. I don't really know why we're doing the things we're doing anymore. Uh, the music and the intensity of the action is carrying it at this point. The logic is just out the fucking window. Um, Rumi says, we don't need two Mimas. Uh, Mima replies, I'm an actress. <laughs> um, and then Rumi replies, silly, uh, Mima is an idol. And then Mima's response, though, is like I care. I am who I am. So she quotes Popeye. Uh, and I guess that's her That's her moment of clarity. That, I mean, that's supposed to be the thesis of her character, is that uh, through all these layers of reality, through through all this performance culture and, you know, assuming different roles uh, as an idol and as an actress and in inhabiting roles as an actress and whatnot. Um, she lost track of herself and her journey is supposed to be, uh, she found like her true self. She found her true voice or something. I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see the journey she went on. I saw a lady go nuts. I did not find a lady... I feel like this story, this story should have had a tragic end because everything Mima's been through suggests to me that she would not be better off than how she started. Um, somehow she comes out stronger at the end of this. Uh, don't ask me how. Anyway, uh, Mima pulls off Rumi's wig, and in response, um, Rumi has, has this really illogical response. That, I mean, it makes sense from a character standpoint, so I'm not critical of it, but it's just really funny to watch because she's so preoccupied with uh, inhabiting this role of, of Mima. Like, Rumi's gone. Like, she, in her mind, it's like, no, I'm, I'm Mima. Uh, the, when the wig comes off, her first reaction isn't to 
to kill the person that she's trying to kill, who she has in a position to do so, uh, it's to go for the wig. Because it's like, oh, no, you in, by removing the wig, you, you're removing a portion of the illusion, and it's it's rattling my reality, my sense of reality. So she goes for the wig and accidentally like bends over onto a blade of glass <laughs> that impales her. And oof, uh, that'd kill you. Um, it doesn't. So what? Ha- there's this really neat moment where Rumi stands up and she's like wailing and the, the music just dies out at this point. And there's, again, this really pathetic moment, kind of like the case with the stalker, where she's like fatally wounded and she just kind of like wanders away from Mima into the street and because she's kind of husky and in a skimpy dress and still holding the fucking wig with a hole in her stomach, by the way, uh, it comes across as like really sad. Like you don't, you aren't mad at her at that point. You're just like, oh man, that is a fucked up lady. <laughs> um, and then just like earlier in the film, a truck starts speeding down the road and the headlights are flashing onto Rumi and we get uh, another uh, trailer shot. Uh, it's a still image that was used extensively to promote the film where it's basically a Mima, idol Mima, in the red dress with a blood smeared across half of her face looking... I don't know how to explain what her expression is actually, but that's part of the allure of it. It's it's a, it's different. Um, anyway, um, the truck is bearing down on Rumi and uh, crowd noise starts to play on the soundtrack and she kind of like stands up and throws her, her hands up like like she's embracing like the roar of the crowd or something so she does not see the truck her delusion is is complete at this point um instead of getting run over which would have been tasty and awesome if you ask me um mima runs out into the street and shoulder checks her and uh both ladies are laying in their back in the street we hear distant sirens and a camera pulls all the way back and we see this vast cityscape that is lovingly rendered by the way um, and then we cut to a hospital, soft lighting, and uh, both both women survived. Both ladies are fine. Um, we're at like a mental hospital of some sort, and uh, as it so happens, Mima is there visiting Rumi, uh, separated by by glass for sure. Like they aren't meeting each other face to face. Mima's just there. Um, but yeah, uh, the doctor tells Mima that Rumi comes back to herself every once in a while but most of the time she she believes herself to be Mima uh, as evidenced by her like holding a bouquet and uh, we see her walk up to a reflective surface and sure enough uh, there's a Mima in the mirror um, closing shot of the closing shots of the film are uh, Mima stepping out of the hospital and as she passes a couple of nurses, the nurses kind of like gossip to themselves. And they're like, oh, is that the real Mima Kirigoi? No, it can't be. And then Mima gets into her car. Uh, she adjusts her rearview mirror. Uh, she <laughs> flips her sunglasses down to her nose. And she looks at her reflection and says, no, I'm real. And then cue J-pop over the credits. Horrible ending. Whoa, 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 is my last uh, <laughs> my last note here, uh, because yeah, that, that is a truly dreadful ending. It doesn't feel earned at all. It doesn't play into the logic of the storytelling up to this point. Um, I really don't know what the intention was here, um, and the the I think the thing that really kills it for me is the the concept of like a shared delusion, 
because that just makes no goddamn sense. I'm sorry. And like I said, I, I would have actually been okay with, with Rumi's like heel turn at the end if if it was explained to me or if like some of the questions I had about some of the projections that Mima had earlier in the film tied into it, but they seem like it seems like she was having a, a nervous breakdown independent of everything else, which just doesn't work from a storytelling standpoint. Um, but anyway, uh, Perfect Blue is, I don't know, it's, it's a pretty unique film in the animation world. Uh, it has a unique tone. The subject matter is definitely very rich. Uh, I mean, I went on plenty of tangents here just talking to myself, um, so obviously there's a lot to it. I think it's good for that purpose. Um, Satoshi Kon, like I said, uh, unfortunately passed away, so will not be making further films, although apparently his last film, that uh, they actually animated a portion of it. Uh, it's still up for debate as to whether it'll ever be completed. I highly doubt it, because uh, as far as I understand, the producers of it uh, felt it would not necessarily be disrespectful to complete without him, but just felt like, you know, the guy had a pretty unique voice, and the fact that we have some, some, some animation that he directed, but not all of it, maybe that should just be the end of it. Um, but yeah, it's really a shame that uh, that our original recording for this episode didn't pan out. Um, the file was unfortunately corrupted because uh, this kind of goes against the whole concept of Anime August. The whole point was that a uh, Kyle doesn't really have much of a background with Japanese animation, uh, so I was using this month as an opportunity to kind of give him like a, a 101, like a crash course on, you know, some of the big name directors and some of the big name studios, uh, just to give him give him a, a bit of background. Um, but not entirely sure why I decided to close the month with Perfect Blue, but I think maybe it just had to do with the darker, like the darkest tone of it, although that ending kind of betrays everything that the movie was leading up to um but anyway uh my hope is that i don't have to do too many of these solo episodes going forward but uh hopefully uh hopefully you were able to tolerate me talking into a vacuum for the past two hours um that being said uh thank you so much uh, for joining us here on catching up on cinema uh tune in next week <laughs>